They're a common sight if you go out for a hike in the mountains here in Switzerland. Little stacks of stones piled one on top of the other. Sometimes rock cairns are clearly there to mark a trail, to keep you from losing your way in an exposed area where the path becomes rocky or less visible. But often they don't seem to serve any practical purpose at all. My family and I spent much of our vacation this past summer in the Berner Oberland, and we saw lots of cairns of this sort. Heading up the Valbach Gorge, the trail widened and crossed a little creek, and suddenly there were rocks stacked on top of one another all over the place, lining the path, staggered up the hillside, there in the water itself. Up on the Manlichen Ridge, where the trail is practically a superhighway with hikers everywhere, and there is absolutely no danger of getting lost, rows and rows of cairns were built in one particularly picturesque spot looking down into the valley toward Grindelwald. We were happy to stop and add a stone, of course, like so many had already done this season. What's that all about? This impulse to build a little something along the trail. Maybe for some it's a sort of fun game to pass a few minutes while you've stopped for a water break. But maybe it's also a way to respond to a place that seems to demand a response. A place that hums with beauty and life. A place where you can sense something of the holiness of the world. I thought about those cairns that I saw this summer when I came back to this familiar story we have in front of us today. Moses on Mount Horeb, confronted with the burning bush. Shoes off, God says because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I've always loved that image of Moses removing his sandals because it makes sense to me. I know that impulse to do something, to respond somehow and tend to the holiness of a particular place. Stack a few stones together or lay down in the grass for a moment or sing a song or pull out a sketchbook and a pencil or sit in silence or take off your shoes and feel the soil between your toes. Moses is on holy ground here, a place where an extraordinary encounter with God is about to take place, one that will change the direction of his life and the future of his people. So pay attention, Moses. Don't just pass by chasing your sheep. Stop right here and take off your shoes. That is certainly part of why Moses ends up barefoot on the mountainside that day long ago. But there might be another reason besides. And to make sense of that, we need to back up a little bit in the story. Last week, we heard the beginning of the Exodus story focused on five women whose simple acts of bravery and defiance opened up the way for Moses to be born and actually to survive childhood under the rule of a paranoid and ruthless pharaoh. Moses is born to Hebrew parents, of course, but he largely grows up the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. It's a pretty strange scene to imagine, this little boy playing in the palace of the king who has done his very best to ensure that children like him get thrown into the Nile. But that's what childhood looks like for Moses, this unlikely scene of growing up safe and sound in the care of the princess. 
Years pass, and we're told that one day, when he's no longer a boy, but now a young man, Moses ventures outside the palace and sees, maybe for the first time, what life is like for his people. And in particular, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. This is nothing new, of course. Since before Moses' birth, his people have been treated this way, oppressed and pushed to the limit by Pharaoh's brutal taskmasters. But remember, Moses has been off in the palace. He hasn't been confronted with what life is actually like out here in the fields. And when he sees for himself, he's shocked. He knows these are his people. He knows it's not right that they be treated this way. And the Bible tells us that after sort of looking both ways to see if anybody's watching, Moses quickly kills the Egyptian taskmaster and buries him in the sand. He clearly hopes that nobody knows about this sort of impulsive and violent action that could certainly threaten his future in Egypt. But the very next day, Moses sees two other Hebrews in a heated argument, and when he jumps in to break it up, one turns to him and and says, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And suddenly Moses knows that his secret is out. He knows it's no longer safe for him to stay here. And I think he knows something else in that moment as well. He knows that he's now a person without a home. I mean, think about what a strange situation this young man is in. He's an Israelite, of course, but his own people don't trust him this stranger who grew up in the privileged life of the palace and suddenly burst out into the fields with this fiery temper. He was raised among Egyptians, but he knows he's not really one of them either. There's no place for him now, so he heads for the wilderness, for Midian, in this dry and dusty region of Sinai. If one of his new Midianite neighbors sidled up and asked him, so Moses, where are you from? I imagine him responding with something like, Well, it's complicated. It's no wonder that when he eventually marries a local woman named Zipporah and their first child is born, he calls the baby Gershom, a name that contains the Hebrew word stranger. That's Moses' life, through and through. A stranger, an alien, never really at home, no matter where he goes. That's the background to what happens on that afternoon when Moses is out tending his father-in-law's flocks and he notices a bush behaving in a very unbush-like way. And when you have that backstory in mind, this business about taking off his sandals might sound a little different. Yes, he certainly takes them off because this is a holy place and it's a way to stop and show it due respect. But a former teacher of mine noted that people don't only take off their shoes when they're entering the presence of the sacred. They also do it when they're home. It's true in a huge variety of cultures in different times and places. It's probably true for you. What's the first thing you do when you get home? Remove your shoes. And so maybe that's also part of what's going on here. Moses, the perpetual stranger, alienated from his own people, chased out of the only country he's known, living as a foreigner in the wilderness, is finally finding his place. Here in the presence of God who calls him by name, he's home. So where's home for you? 
It's a very natural question to ask in an international city like Geneva, and especially in a congregation like ours, full of global nomads. Most of us come from somewhere else, after all. It's a natural question to ask, but the answer is not always so easy. Well, many of us say, it's complicated. Is home where you grew up, or where your family is now, or where you've spent the greatest number of years of your life, or where you're living at the moment? It's complicated. It's a very personal question, and one for each of us to answer in our own way. But Moses' story gives us another angle for looking at that question of home, of identity, of where we belong. Moses, the perpetual stranger, finally finds his home in the calling of God and in the profound relationship that it opens up for him. It's a strange sort of home, to be sure. It's certainly not a settled place. Moses barely has time to get his sandals off and get comfortable before God is talking about sending him back to Egypt, back to the very place he fled from. And it is certainly not always comfortable or safe. In fact, Moses has no interest in God's idea of standing up to Pharaoh and leading a popular revolt. This is not at all what he had in mind. You probably know that prophetic calls often go this way in the Bible. God calls and the prophet objects. Jeremiah said he was too young. Isaiah said he was a man of unclean lips. A protest is normal, but Moses sort of takes that to a whole nother level. He protests not once, not twice, but eight times over the next chapter and a half, giving all sorts of reasons why God has the wrong person in mind for this particular job. Eight times. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt, Moses asks. And I think we expect God to lay it all out here and sort of try to convince him to talk about Moses' courage or faithfulness or tenacity or ability to inspire hope in others, or at least to say something nice about his potential to develop. We expect some kind of pep talk, but God's answer has nothing to do with Moses' qualifications at all. Because really here, that's beside the point. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, says Moses. I will be with you, replies God. And that's just it. This relationship, filled with challenge and purpose, disruption and hope, calling and struggle, is where Moses finds his home. It won't be easy. It will demand much from him. But he will never be alone. I hope you hear the promise in this story today. The promise that no matter where you are, the God who calls your name is there inviting you into a relationship of trust, into participation in God's work, into a life of seeking justice and wholeness for others. You may very well be surprised at where it takes you, what it asks of you, what surprises it brings. But in this relationship, you will never be alone. And because that is so, we can be home anywhere. Wherever we are is sacred. A place to sing, to be still, to remove our shoes, to stack a few stones on top of one another. In the presence of God, every place is holy.
in the presence of God, we are always home. Amen.